0: January 1984, seven-year-old Gary Grant Jr. was killed while walking home from a friend's house. The neighborhood was shocked when an arrest was made early on, but when the charges were dismissed, mysterious messages were sent, followed by decades of silence. Is the key to solving this cold case a recording that went unheard for 30 years? I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome back if you've listened before. I'm glad you're here ready to talk about another true crime case. This is an unsolved case that I've been interested in for a long time. I actually did a short Patreon write-up for this for my old podcast Insight, but that was three years ago and 20 people heard it, if that. It was short, and it wasn't terribly detailed, so to make this episode, I essentially started from scratch in researching this case for a full-length episode, and I knew there would be enough information. And with a more thorough dig, there definitely was. I know you're not here for my chit-chat, but I did want to mention real quick that I have an extra set of background noises in my episodes. Potentially, we just adopted a dog a three-year-old miniature schnauzer. His name is Gus, and you will get to meet him on this week's live stream. But if you hear a little howl in the background that I don't catch as I'm recording, or the pitter-patter of little feet over my head, that is where that's coming from. So let's jump into today's episode. This story starts on January 12, 1984, which was a day off of school for seven-year-old Gary Lee Grant Jr. He was a second grader at Our Lady Star of the Sea School in Atlantic City, New Jersey. But this day was a teacher's conference, so he was home with his mother, May, and his two older sisters. Gary was an active kid, very, very outgoing. On his days off, he would be outside playing, usually trying to get a game of street hockey going with all of his neighborhood friends. And that's exactly what his mom encouraged him to do on this day off, go outside and play. It was winter in New Jersey, so it would have been cold in the morning, a slight warm up in the afternoon, and then the sun would disappear quickly and early. Having grown up on the coast just a few hours north of Atlantic City, I know just how precious those middle hours of sunlight were in the winter. This day was even better. It was nearly 50 degrees, which is about as good as winter temps get. It's no wonder May was pushing Gary out the door to go run off some of that cabin fever that sets in in winter. But when May told Gary he needed to go play after he ate, Gary gave a bit of an odd answer. He said he couldn't play because he had an appointment at 2.30, but he wouldn't give her the details of this appointment playing like it was a secret. I say this answer was a little bit odd because I think some people without experience with seven-year-olds would think, why is a seven-year-old talking about an appointment he had? But then those of us who have met seven-year-olds know they say things like this. My six-year-old heard sirens the other day and wondered if the police were looking for an alien who escaped from Area 51. Just a quick note, we live in Kansas City, Missouri. Nowhere near Area 51, even if there were aliens there, which I am not conceding. Kids say things that are more imagination than anything else, or they use words they only know the vague meaning of. Like the other day when my six-year-old told me he was unimpressed with me. Why? Because I forgot to give him his allowance. The word wasn't wrong. He was definitely not impressed, but it wasn't exactly precise either. So Gary's appointment could have just been a friend he was meeting up with to play. That said, Gary's father said this was not a word they had heard Gary use before, and it sounded like it was something someone said to him. And it's a rather adult word, so he thinks this may possibly have been an adult. But whether this 2.30 appointment is a vital clue or not, we will be discussing later. Personally, the part of what Gary said to his mother that hit my ear wrong wasn't the appointment part. It was the secret part. I always have the talk with my kids that no one, adult or child, should ask them to keep a secret from their parents. We're just going to move slightly off topic, so I can recommend the book Protecting the Gift by Gavin De Becker. It is a little bit older of a book by this point. I've been parenting for a while, but it really goes beyond the stranger danger model of teaching safety that was so popular in the 1980s. The people our children are the most vulnerable to are not strangers. We cannot protect our kids from everything. I think we've learned that lesson again and again when we see parents making absolutely reasonable choices, yet bad things still happen. But there are things we can do to lessen our children's risk of being victimized, so I recommend reading Protecting the Gift to help with some guidance on that. Okay, back to the case. May assumed, like you would, that Gary was playing pretend or he just had a little meetup with his friends planned. I lean towards this being a planned meetup because while he was playing outside with his friends, he also told them about this 2.30 appointment. They were under the impression, and I think May was too, that Gary's appointment was with a little neighborhood girlfriend, and that would explain why the seven-year-old wasn't so forthcoming about it to his mom. When Gary left his home at noon and met up with his friends outside, he promised he would be home around four. That would give him time to get washed up for dinner, and he would be home before sunset. When four rolled around, Gary didn't come home. He wasn't usually late, but Mae didn't worry immediately. Kids are notoriously bad about watching clocks while they're playing with their friends. She did send one of her older daughters down to the school, though. Their dad, Gary Sr., coached the middle school-aged basketball team, and Gary would often tag along. The kids on the team considered Gary sort of a team mascot. May and Gary Sr. had been separated pending divorce for roughly a year at this point, so May thought maybe Gary Sr. drove over and picked up little Gary to take him down to the school, and they just didn't think to tell her. Those miscommunication things happen all the time. But... When his sister got to the school, Gary wasn't there. May then went to the home of two little girls that Gary often played with. They told her that Gary had been there, but he left between 4 and 4.30 to go home. One source indicated that Gary left not long before May knocked on the door looking for him, which would put it closer to 4.30. The girl said he was heading home when he left. And this timeline makes sense because dinner was served in their home at 4.30. It was something Gary did not ever miss. And even if he was going home later than 4, he probably would have noticed it was starting to get a little darker and that meant it was nearly dinner time. It was actually when Gary didn't show up at 4.30 for dinner that May was the most alarmed and started looking for him. After two more hours and more checking with friends and walking through the neighborhood looking for Gary, May called her estranged husband, Gary Sr., and told him that their son was missing. Gary worked overnights as a police officer in Atlantic City, so he was due to report for his shift at midnight. Instead, he called in to report Gary Jr. missing, and then he took the night off to search in the overnight hours for his son. The initial search lasted until 2 a.m., but nothing was found, and it was decided to stop for the night and it up again in the daylight hours. So on Friday, January 13th, the Atlantic City police force swarmed to the neighborhood looking for the little boy. Gary Sr. was told at this point to take a step back. He was a police officer, and it was against policy and procedure to allow him to be involved in his son's missing persons case. Gary Sr. then did what most parents would do. He sort of nodded and then conducted his own search outside the areas the police were working. He went to the arcades and the boardwalks, and he even went into abandoned houses. At one arcade, some people said they saw a boy that looked like Gary there on Friday morning, which gave Gary Sr. some hope that his son was still just running around with friends. It didn't make sense for Gary to have done that. He wasn't the type of kid to do that. He was only seven years old. But you have to hold on to hope for as long as you can. As Friday wore on, though, he started losing that hope little by little. When they hit the 24-hour mark, Gary Sr. started doing the Unimaginable. He was looking in dumpsters and trash cans. He was now looking for his son's body. The authorities were also increasing the scope of their search and they sent out a request in the media asking people to check their properties. If they had an outbuilding or a shed or a parked car nobody drove or even a boat in their backyard, Anywhere a little boy could hide, fall asleep, could have been left hurt, they needed to check it. On Saturday morning, Robert Huey, who was the New Jersey Commissioner of Environmental Protection, heard about the missing boy. He did not live in the neighborhood, which explains why it took a day and a half for him to hear about this massive search but he did own property there. It was a large lot with an old warehouse building. It was only about two blocks from Gary Grant's home. It was a common area for the neighborhood kids to play, and Robert knew it, so he figured he should go out there and take a look. He went out there around three in the afternoon to conduct a search of his property. And around 3.30 on Saturday, Two days after Gary went missing, Robert found his little body in the lot next to the warehouse, hidden under a rug. It was obvious that Gary had died from a severe head wound. The thing about this area is that May and her sister Eileen had already been over there to look for Gary when he hadn't come home. They passed right by him because they weren't looking for someone on the ground. They weren't looking for a lump under a rug. They were expecting to find Gary playing with his friends somewhere. The rug hadn't stuck out to anyone else in the area either. It didn't look odd. It didn't look that out of place because it just looked like vacant lot debris. When Gary's body was found and Robert alerted the police, they immediately went radio silent, knowing that Gary Sr. would be able to hear anything they said over the radio. They did not want him to find out in police lingo what had happened to his son before they could give him a proper notification. But it just so happened that Gary Sr. was driving down an adjacent street and noticed that instead of being fanned out, several police cars were all in one area. He had a feeling of what that meant, so he showed up at the scene. He saw his son's body lying in that field, and he had to be restrained. His instinct was to run to him, but they needed to keep people away from what was now a crime scene. Gary Sr. was then transported to the hospital to be treated for shock. May told the Philadelphia Inquirer days later that she wondered if Gary had been left alive after the attack and if he could have been saved if he was found sooner. But the autopsy answered that question. Gary Jr. was not left still alive. Near his body, just two and a half feet away, was a foot and a half long pipe, and it was the presumed murder weapon due to the blood on it. Gary had been hit three or four times in the head with significant force with this heavy pipe. Even if he had been found immediately, it does not look like he could have been saved. By the time anyone knew he was missing, he was probably already dead. In piecing together his movements that day, the police believe Gary was intercepted as he walked home, and he possibly could have been lured onto the lot. Gary was left where he had been killed, and the murder weapon was nearby, so the entire crime was confined to that neighborhood canvassing began from that spot and moved outward. It was a huge shock, as you can imagine, for a sweet, friendly, adorable seven-year-old neighborhood kid to be attacked like that so close to home. Gary had not been sexually assaulted in any way. There were no signs that someone attempted to sexually assault him. So what possibly could have been The motive to kill a seven year old. It seemed random and it was hard for the neighborhood to really process this as a community. The police spoke with somewhere between 20 and 30 witnesses. Again, It was nearly 50 degrees out in the middle of the winter, so there were a lot of people outside, but they were mostly children. So of those 20 or 30 witnesses, the majority were ages 12 and under. These are not people who tend to be the most reliable when it comes to the time they last saw things. But one name came up a couple of times, that of 12-year-old Carl Mason, who lived in the neighborhood very close to Gary. Being that he was a minor at the time this happened, I normally would not be naming Carl. However, as an adult, he has been interviewed in regards to this case, notably on Unsolved Mysteries. So that's the only reason I'm using his name. I try not to use the name of minors unless necessary to telling the story or because they have opted to be public as adults anyway the grand family was aware of who carl was the neighborhood kids said that carl and gary played together a lot in spite of being 5 years older carl was actually smaller than gary carl was quite small for his age and he was one of the kids that Gary would play hockey with. But May said she did not approve of Gary playing with Carl, and he wasn't supposed to. Carl was a kid who would skip school, and he would hang out at the arcades when he wasn't supposed to be there, and May thought this older boy was just not a good influence on a seven-year-old. Around 8 p.m. on Saturday night, The day Gary's body was found, Carl showed up at May's apartment with a friend. The friend said Carl knew something about Gary's disappearance. Carl was shaking, and he looked terrified to come in. When he did, he just said, I didn't see him. But other witnesses, a.k.a. kids in the neighborhood, said that Carl and Gary were together at a mutual friend's house that day, making Carl one of the last people to have seen Gary. So the police were suspicious of the situation and wondered if Carl knew more than he was saying. The police first talked to him around 9 p.m., an hour after he was at Gary's apartment. He was at the apartment of a relative, Carl denied seeing Gary that day at all, which did contradict the other witnesses. Carl said the two had ridden their bikes together on Wednesday, and they were supposed to meet up to hang out on Thursday, but Gary never showed up. I do wonder if meeting up with Carl was the appointment Gary told his mother he had at 2.30, but he didn't want to say what it was because he knew his mother wasn't a fan of Carl. But if he knew that, why did he bring it up to his mother at all and not just run out and play? This is just one explanation for the appointment, but we'll touch on it again later. Sometime after midnight, probably around one in the morning, about four hours after Carl first told police that he didn't see Gary that day, The police brought him and his grandmother down to the station for further questioning. Though Carl lived with his mother and grandmother, his grandmother was his legal guardian. His mother had difficulty raising him on her own, and his father lived in Philadelphia. We're off to an okay start with the police questioning Carl. I mean, taking a 12 year old in for questioning in the overnight hours seems a bit iffy but at least his guardian was there. Except they had her sit in the lobby while they took Carl into an office with three or four detectives. They kept questioning him about the day, and Carl eventually admitted, around 2.30 in the morning, that he had been with Gary that day. Pushed some more, Carl kept coming up with new stories, He had one story about a homeless man chasing them. Then he had one about the two of them running through the lot. Gary tripped and hit his head when he fell. Then Carl had another story saying that he hit Gary, but it was in the leg. And then there was another one about someone named Dominic. That's the person who actually hurt Gary. But eventually, with more questioning, Carl came around to admitting that he was the one who killed Gary. He said they got into an argument. Carl choked Gary, and Gary threw a rock at him. Carl then grabbed the pipe and hit Gary in the head two to three times. When Gary didn't get back up, Carl covered him with a rug and ran. This full confession came at somewhere around 6 a.m., so we are four to five hours into this interrogation. At some point, they did bring Carl's grandmother into the room, and she signed, along with Carl, the waiver of his Miranda rights. The detective then wrote up his confession, and Carl signed it. Prior to signing it, Carl changed his story... Again, and he recanted. He told his grandmother that he didn't do anything and that the police told him he could go home if he confessed, and that's why he did it. But Carl then signed the written confession anyway, while he was also saying he didn't do it. Carl was then booked and sent to a juvenile facility. New Jersey law then and now does not allow for 12-year-olds to be charged as adults, period, no matter what the charges are, so this was always going to be a juvenile court matter. On January 16th, the headlines hit about Carl's arrest and the entire community was shaken. This is a 12-year-old who is being accused of beating his friend to death. Not only had this neighborhood lost a seven-year-old, it was allegedly at the hands of another neighborhood kid. We all look to protect our kids from adults and strangers and people who want to do them harm, but how often do we even think about their friends as threats? And if the people of the neighborhood were surprised to begin with, they were more so when they heard it wasn't just any 12-year-old arrested, it was Carl who had been arrested. Now, here's the thing about Carl. For one, I mentioned how small he was. He was 10 to 20 pounds lighter than Gary. And from my understanding, they were the same height, if not... Carl being a little bit shorter. The force used to kill Gary was considerable. There was blood and tissue found quite a ways from the body due to the force. It was hard to picture this scrawny kid overpowering anyone and then wielding the pipe like that. Even one of Gary's 11-year-old cousins told the Philadelphia Inquirer that there was no way Carl did it. The other thing was that this seemed completely outside of Carl's nature to do something violent. He was so timid that his nickname was Boo. And that was not just a passing nickname. That's what his family and friends called him. Some of them called him that, more often than they called him Carl. One of his family members said he was scared of his own shadow. Everyone said he was terrified of the dark. He never stayed out late because of it. So Gary being killed close to sunset almost doesn't make sense if it was Carl. He would generally try to be home by then. Now, while May had perfectly valid reasons to not want Carl influencing her son, you know, playing hooky, hanging out where he's not supposed to be. Gary was not told to stay away from Carl because he was a threat of any kind. But the police believed differently. They believed that Carl had been a deadly threat to Gary. And they began building their case. On the Sunday, Carl was arrested and the Wednesday after, he was given polygraph tests. The results were widely reported as inconclusive or internally contradictory, but it later came out that Carl passed on the question of, did he kill Gary Grant Jr.? He said no, and no deception was detected. But when he was asked about being at the crime scene, it came back as possibly deceptive. Everyone has their own view about polygraphs and the accuracy overall, but we are talking about a child here. There isn't a lot of evidence on the accuracy of polygraphs with juveniles, likely because who in the world is out there strapping kids to lie detectors? There was one study that showed the accuracy was too low with kids under the age of 11 to be considered reliable under any circumstances. That was the only specific study I could find. Carl was 12, so he's a little bit above this cutoff. But then I found training information for polygraph testing coming out of Colorado, and it said that people needed to have a functional age of 12, not chronological. They have to be developmentally and cognitively on par with the average 12-year-old to be candidates for polygraphs. For adults, their IQ must be at least 70. So Carl was 12, but he had an IQ of 65. That is not a functional age of 12. So the results, in his favor or not, need to be chucked out the window. You might as well have let my two-year-old interpret the polygraph results for how reliable they are. But the case was moving forward regardless, and Carl's trial date was set for March 1984. The charge was a broad juvenile delinquency charge, but he was still facing a lot of jail time, even though he was not being tried as an adult. It's not like he would have been out at 18 or 21 when he aged out of the juvenile system. He would have been transferred to an adult prison. The evidence against Carl was the confession, period. There were no witnesses to the murder, no fingerprints on the pipe, and no other forensic evidence. The most they found were two small bloodstains on Carl's clothes but they were so small that they couldn't even be blood-typed to see if they matched Gary. The idea that Carl brutally beat someone to death and got two little specks of blood on him seems far-fetched. And the bloodstains being so tiny and impossible to trace back to Gary, I don't think they would have been admitted as evidence in the trial. Evidence has to meet a standard to be allowed in to be presented to the judge or jury. I just don't see this having made the cut. So, with the confession the only thing against him, Carl, through his attorney, tried to get the confession thrown out. In defense of the confession, the police said Carl gave information only the killer would know at the time he was being. Questioned. Carl had been taken into custody just hours after Gary's body was found, so there wasn't even time for this information to be in the media. Carl's attorney then put a neighborhood kid on the stand during the hearing over the confession, and that kid said everyone was talking about the details of the murder. He recounted a conversation he had with Carl. Before the police questioned him, Carl said he heard Gary had been shot, which was an early neighborhood rumor. The friend then told Carl that Gary was wrapped in a rug with a brick on his head and his feet, which was information not in the media that Carl then told the police. This neighborhood kid is saying, oh yeah, I'm the one who told him that. This kid couldn't remember if They had talked about Gary being killed with the pipe or not, but the overall point of this was to show that the neighborhood kids don't need something to be in the media to know it. They just overhear their parents talking and then they spread the bits of gossip they heard. It may even explain some of Carl's changing stories when he talked to the police. He could have just been combining rumors. The only thing that stands out to me, though, is that Carl said he choked Gary at some point in their fight. At the time he was being questioned, even the investigators didn't know that detail because the autopsy report had not been completed. It was on autopsy that some type of injury to Gary's neck was noted. And it doesn't seem likely that that would have been Part of the wild rumors, since the police say they didn't even know it at the time. But we also can't discount it because there were a lot of untrue details that were being spread around, like the gunshot. One of them may have been, oh, I heard he was strangled to death or I heard he was choked. But attacking the factual basis for the confession was just one argument, and I would say the weaker of the two the bulk of Carl's defense was that his rights were violated when he gave the confession. So it doesn't matter what was in there. The confession was obtained in violation of Carl's constitutional rights. For one, Carl was questioned without legal representation or a guardian present, even though he was only 12 years old. He had been kept awake all night and told he could not go to sleep until he he told the investigators what he knew. And it's safe to say that's something a 12-year-old may interpret not as tell the truth, but rather tell the adults what they want to hear. He also was not read his Miranda rights until after he started confessing. The attorney also pointed to Carl's intellectual disabilities, having a teacher testify that Carl couldn't read more than single-syllable words at the time. So having him sign that he understood his Miranda rights and then sign a written confession was inappropriate. Carl couldn't have understood either. Carl's grandmother also had a low education level and she testified that she did not understand the paper she signed when she was signing the waiver of his rights. She had also been awake in that waiting room all night and was tired, worn down, and complying with authority. The power dynamic between the police and witnesses or suspects is really skewed in the favor of the interrogators, and that needs to be taken into consideration. The state, now on the defensive, said Carl wasn't Mirandized until he started confessing because he wasn't being interviewed as a suspect. The police said they believed he was a witness. It was only when he started confessing that they knew he was now a suspect and they had to read him his rights. And that's absolutely true. The police do not have to read you your rights every time they talk to you. But when the state was then asked why Carl had to be interviewed overnight when he was tired and why his witness statement couldn't have just waited until the morning like everyone else's, the state's position was that you don't want to lose momentum when you are questioning someone and you're on the right track. Okay, so which is it? Carl wasn't a suspect, so he didn't need to have his rights explained to him. But he was enough of a suspect that you couldn't stop questioning him because he was close to cracking. It sounds like they wanted it both ways. The judge thought so at least. He threw out the confession, saying that Carl was improperly questioned and he did not understand his rights. The judge's actual words were that the police trampled on Carl's constitutional rights. And looking at the state's case without the confession, the judge saw there wasn't much there. So he ordered Carl to be released to the custody of his family. He would be basically on house arrest pending trial, if this would go to trial, He could leave to go to school, but otherwise he had to stay home. When Gary Sr. heard this, he bolted from the courtroom while yelling obscenities and words like, you little maggot. And Carl's attorney was worried that these indicated threats against Carl. And he asked the judge to have Gary Sr. picked up and detained, but the judge instead told the sheriff's department to just go make contact with Gary Sr., assess the situation, and basically make sure he calms down. I mean, a sudden outburst from a grieving father is not reason enough to pick him up and treat him like a criminal. The judge did decide that Carl would not be released immediately, but rather the next day, which would also help Gary Sr., have some time to calm down. The upside was that it also gave Carl's family time to come up with a plan. Carl was being allowed to go back home, but his home was very close to Gary's apartment, and that wouldn't be a good situation for either family. Carl ended up moving in with other relatives. The state, of course, appealed the judge's decision to throw out the confession, Without it, all they had were those two small drops of blood that they couldn't even match to Gary and likely would not be admissible. The appeals did not go in the state's favor, and the judge's decision was affirmed. The confession was out. The state had no choice but to drop the charges against Carl. Gary Sr. has long maintained that Carl was at least there when it happened, whether as a witness or a participant. And had the police approached questioning Carl differently, perhaps actually as a witness and without the goal of getting a confession, you have to wonder if Carl would have told the truth. But once they got this ever-changing confession out of him, he had defense attorneys involved. The police were not going to get another shot at questioning him. Over the next two years, the case stalled out. Then on January 4th, 1986, graffiti appeared on the side of an Atlantic City patrol car. It happened in the overnight hours, roughly around 3 a.m., which was the shift Gary Sr. worked. However, this was not his patrol car. But, written in marker was the message quote, "Gary grant's dead, I am living. Another will die on January 12th if all goes right." End quote." Now January 12th, of course, would have been the second anniversary of Gary's murder. January 12th came and went without another killing. So was this a taunt from the killer, or just an ugly prank? The writing has been looked at and assumed to be that of an adult, but I wouldn't rule out a teenager. This wasn't the only message, though. Another message appeared a few weeks later, written on a cement sidewalk. This one said, quote, Gary Grant Jr. lives. I still killed him. Son of a pig officer. Payback is AMF, end quote. The writing actually said, MF. I'm not just censoring. Bad language. These two messages were obviously targeted. One was written on a police car, and the other claims this is payback and referred to Gary Sr. being in law enforcement. One or both of these messages could be pranks or hoaxes, obviously. But if they are for real, Gary Jr. wasn't killed in the heat of the moment or during a little playground scrap that went too far. He was targeted because of his father. This was a motive and one that the community could understand. But Gary Sr. could not think of anyone he interacted with on the job or off who he felt threatened by. Not even someone who, while getting arrested, said something impulsive in anger about getting revenge or about hurting Gary Sr. He had none of those incidences. But if this was the motive, it may not have been directed at Gary Sr. specifically. It may have been someone wanting to get back at the Atlantic City Police Department as a whole, and Gary Jr. happened to be the kid of a police officer that they chose to target. After these two messages, the department then did something pretty controversial and not entirely supported by the prosecutor's office. They assigned the case to Gary Sr. They gave him the case to work on during work hours, making him the lead investigator on his son's case. And Gary Sr., has some complaints about the early investigation. He already felt like he was being kept in the dark more than an everyday citizen would have been, possibly because the police department was afraid he would abuse his police authority if he knew too much. But now with the case file, he realized there were some gaps. For one, Robert Huey, the man who found Gary on his property... Was never formally interviewed. All they had was his at the scene statement. My guess is that they had Carl in custody so quickly with his confession that they were pursuing that course and may not have branched out nearly enough with other leads. If I made a true crime podcast bingo card, this next phrase would definitely be on it, but I'm using it anyway. The first investigators on Gary Grant's murder case had tunnel vision. But now was Gary Sr.'s chance to rework the case, though it would not be in an official capacity for very long. It was shortly after he was given the case that he was pulled off of it again. Not because of any misconduct, it just seems like the pushback from giving him the case was enough for them to take him off of it but he had a lot of the case file and got more as the years passed. He worked on it on his own time, even when he moved away from New Jersey to Puerto Rico. In 2015, Gary Sr. was working on converting all of the old audio cassettes from the case into MP3s, and he came across a tape that he didn't remember hearing before. There were two 911 calls made in 1986 in relation to the case. The first one was made in the short window that Gary Sr. was the lead investigator in the case. So I wonder if it wasn't passed on until after the case was reassigned, so he had never had a chance to hear it. Because I think if he had heard it back in 1986, he would have remembered it. The call was from March 8th, which would have been Gary Jr.'s 10th birthday, and it was just two months after the graffiti messages. I'm going to play the call for you. Don't worry, it is not one of those highly charged 911 calls, but let me sum it up first. The audio is not terrible, but I know hearing and discernment with recordings can vary, and what sounds clear to one person is unintelligible to another so I'll sum up what is being said before I play it. An anonymous man basically asks the dispatcher if he can collect a reward on himself for the murder of Gary Grant. The dispatcher clarifies that he was saying that he committed the crime and wanted to know if he could get the reward, and the caller says, yeah. The dispatcher then offered to patch him through to the detective bureau. He said, no, that's okay. Just make sure they know this isn't a prank call. You'll never be able to catch me. The dispatcher makes an attempt to keep him on the line, but he hangs up. So here's the call. Mason Friar. Oh, yes. Uh, Is is it possible for me to collect a reward on my own self for the murder of Gary Grant? Is it for you to collect an award on your, for yourself? Uh-huh. <laughs> if you have, infa- yeah, if you have information, what are you saying, that, uh, I don't know what you mean, like if you know who did it or something like that, you mean? No, well, I'm I to it myself. I want to collect the only award. If you did it? Yeah. Well, suppose I hook you into the detective no, no. bureau. Mmm, no, that's okay. On the ear- make sure they you know it's not a crank call. you never go to catch them. You know what? you will never able to catch them. You know The reason I wanted to play the call, even though I usually don't do audio like that on my show, and even if you couldn't understand the words very well, it's because maybe someone will recognize that voice. This could be a hoax or a prank, and maybe it is, but if we can identify the caller, the police can rule it in or out. And like I said, this was not the only 911 call. Three months later, on June 2nd, 1986, another man called in. This one may be even harder to understand, but I am going to play it anyway after I summarize it. The man first says he cannot give his name and he refers to the street where Gary Grant Jr.'s body was found. He said a man lived there, gives the man's name, which has been redacted, and the caller says that the man confessed to killing Gary. The dispatcher asked what the man looked like, and the caller said the police knew what he looked like and that Gary was killed because of his father being a police officer, which is in line with the sidewalk vandalism message. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I, I can't give you my name, but um, I was just at uh, California family right hey right. yeah. uh, the guy name i don't know well I'm um, just saying this is his name and uh he's, he's the one that you know he told me he killed uh, Gary green jr because of the father he's dead now yeah he should be still there. what's he look like does uh, the cops know what he looks like his name is he told me he me because of his father. Okay, can you hold on a minute? Hold on a minute. don't hang up, okay? The police did, in fact, know what this man looked like. He lived in Gary Sr.'s patrol area, but Gary did not remember having any problems with this man or any run-ins. Though the man's name has not been released, it has been said that he was arrested in twenty ten or eleven and charged with sexual contact with a child under the age of five and child endangerment. He ended up pleading out on just the endangerment charge. The man's name, like I said, has not been released, but using this information about his arrest, I took a journey through the newspaper archives to see if I could figure out who he was. I wouldn't have named him here if the police haven't released his name, then It's not my place to do so, but let me tell you, Atlantic City had a lot of arrests for sexual abuse, sexual assault, and child endangerment in that time frame. It was one of the most depressing set of search results I have ever had, and after just a few articles about cases that probably weren't him, I decided I did not need to know his name that badly. If this man had nothing to do with Gary's murder, was the 911 call naming him a hoax or was it some type of revenge? Or did he confess to this person for some reason, like to seem tougher than he was? Really, either or both of the 911 calls could have been hoaxes, just like the graffiti could have been hoaxes. It's interesting, though, that we have four instances of anonymous contact with the police about Gary's murder in the first half of 1986 and then nothing since then. I don't know if it's the media reporting about the first incident kind of set off a series of hoaxes, or if Gary's killer started confessing, started opening up, and then when he got closed in on... He backed away, and that's why there's been no contact since then. Gary's case made the news again when it was featured on Unsolved Mysteries, and this episode included interviews with May, Gary Sr., and Carl Mason. Carl's story for Unsolved Mysteries was the first one he told the police. He said that he and Gary had plans to meet up, but Gary never showed. I don't get why... That's the story he's sticking with, since other kids did see them together that day. I would find it easier to believe him if he said he was scared of the police, so he denied seeing Gary just so he wouldn't get involved. This insistence that he didn't see him makes me wonder if Gary Sr. is on the right track there and that Carl does know more than he's saying. Not that he killed Gary, there's absolutely no evidence of that, but perhaps he was there or he heard something. One theory that's been going around is that Carl's older brother was involved. He had a criminal history for robbery and neighborhood gossip was that he would talk younger kids into breaking into homes for him. What if this was Gary's appointment? He was supposed to meet up with Carl as planned, and Carl's brother was there. When the brother tried to get Gary to do something illegal, Gary said no, maybe even threatened to tell on him. So then when Gary was walking home from a friend's house later on, and he was alone, the brother lured him to the lot to prevent him from informing to his police officer father. Now, This is a lot of conjecture and speculation. It is a theory that goes around quite frequently, but it would be a pretty bold move to actively try to recruit the cop's kid like that. And it's not even all that clear to me if Carl's brother was in the neighborhood that day. According to the press of Atlantic City, he had been arrested just a couple days before the murder on a robbery charge so it's possible he was locked up, but maybe not. The rumor is persisting. Another theory is that this was wrong place, wrong time. Gary was walking home and when he passed that property, he saw something he shouldn't see. Most of the people in the neighborhood knew he was the son of a police officer, and the motive here again would have been to keep him quiet. Under this theory, the 2:30 appointment wasn't anything nefarious, which is completely possible, since his friends said he was over their house, alive and well, after this 2.30 whatever it was. A third theory says that the graffiti and the 911 calls are valid, and this was someone wanting to get back at the Atlantic City Police, or Gary Sr. specifically. That would mean this person was watching Gary and waiting for a time when he was away from the other children, to then attack him. And this person could be anyone. I don't lean towards this one, because if this was a message or revenge on Gary Sr. or the police, why wait two years to send them the message? They decided to make a statement, but not one that was communicated very well. I don't think that's it. My money is on Gary's killer being someone from the neighborhood. Another podcast that covered this case is The Trail Went Cold with Robin Warder. And Robin is joining me on my Get Vocal live stream this week on Thursday at 8, 7 Central to discuss the theories of the case and his input. You can watch on GetVocal.com. I will put the link to the live stream in the show notes. Or you can also watch on Facebook Live. Just go to the Crime Lines. Facebook page. I try to read every comment and question made during the live stream, whether it's in the Get Vocal chat room or the Facebook comment section. And we address your theories and your questions right there. So it's honestly an interactive experience. It's not a live stream where you're simply sitting there watching me talk. We're having a conversation. I've really appreciated being able to expand the podcast into that space. So if you are interested in being more actively engaged in case discussions, definitely check out the live stream. If you like to just passively listen to my podcast and move on with your day, that's totally fine, too. The live stream is for case discussion, but if you recognize the voice on the 911 call or you have any information on the murder of Gary Grant Jr., the appropriate people to talk to are the good people at Crime Stoppers. I believe there is a reward in this case, and you can call Crime Stoppers at 1-800-658-8477. This particular Crime Stoppers does have an online tip submission form, so I will leave the phone number and the link in the show notes thank you for listening to Crime Lines you can follow me on Facebook by searching Crime Lines Podcast Twitter at Crime Lines Pod and Instagram at Crime Lines True Crime feel free to follow my personal Instagram at CharlieNKC you can also find the show on Patreon and Himalaya Plus where I post early and ad-free episodes as well as a monthly bonus episode Crime Lines is produced by Basement Fort Productions, LLC. Visit our website, basementfort.com, for more information, including the sources for each episode. And while you're at it, go listen to Rusty Hinges, a comedic, mystery, true crime, and history show hosted by the one and only Lars and written by me, Charlie.